I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire, but I'm reliably told by the media it was Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar who, who had the big night in New Hampshire. They, what bizarre coverage. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Now listen, the, the media has a vested interest in building drama and fighting. It's good for ratings. If Bernie Sanders were running away with it, uh, the media would not be able to generate the spectacle. They've got to keep it close. They've got to manufacture the drama. Uh, But at the same time, the media also does not like the fact that Bernie Sanders is doing well because most people in the media, though they are sympathetic to Bernie Sanders, uh, are mindful of the polling that shows he'd be very vulnerable to Donald Trump and they want to beat Trump. So the big story out of New Hampshire last night isn't allowed to be that Bernie Sanders is winning. It's got to be that Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg are doing amazing, surprising everyone. And also that uh, that Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren are, are toast. I mean, they, they, they are the big losers. Now, in fairness to the coverage, let's acknowledge Bernie Sanders uh, did a very good job uh, but it was close. He and Buttigieg were very, very close. In fact, uh, so I use a service called Decision Desk HQ. Decision, let me, let me, let me get to their website here. Yep, right here. So I can give you the actual final results here. Uh, it was Bernie Sanders, 25.85%. Pete Buttigieg, 24.21%. Amy Klobuchar, 19.82%. So roughly 20% for Amy Klobuchar, 24% for Pete Buttigieg, and 26% for Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren with 9.2%. And uh, Joe Biden with 8.6%. It was not a good night for Joe Biden. He won no counties. Elizabeth Warren won no counties. Tom Steyer got 10,125 votes. He came in sixth. Tulsi Gabbard, who is not dropping out, got 9,092 votes, 3%. Andrew Yang got 2.8%, 7,900 votes. Uh, Deval Patrick got uh, 1,100 votes, and Michael Bennett got 1,000 votes. Now, Michael Bennett is dropping out, and Andrew Yang is dropping out. Tulsi Gabbard says she will stay in. The Bloomberg forces, it was Bloomberg Media started the rumor that Tom Steyer was dropping out. And Deval Patrick is, uh, CBS is saying they're going to, he's going to drop out uh, the the Deval Patrick campaign. Now, I, you know, you didn't even know Deval Patrick was running, I realize. Deval Patrick, uh, just a few months ago, was, uh, I mean, he was the, the great hope. And all sorts of people were really excited about Deval Patrick getting into the race. Uh, there were all sorts of rumors afoot about how awesome he was going to be. And, well, it didn't really work out for Deval Patrick um, in the race. He he did a, well, he never had a reason really to enter. And so many people in the media wanted to give him a reason to enter. And, and he fell flat. Hi, everyone. I'm Deval Patrick. I used to be governor of Massachusetts, but... That's not where I started. Can we just stop right? We we don't even need to hear any more of that. I mean, we we kind of we we kind of understand at that moment that uh, we got a problem there when you've got that's the way he sounds. Now that was that was not a radio ad; it was a TV ad. But come on, let's be serious here. Uh, it it was not a not a not a good 
not a good campaign. And yet the me I was trying to find some audio in here. I had some Chuck Todd. Now listen, I, I like Chuck Todd, but Chuck Todd, when the rumor broke that uh Deval Patrick was gonna get in, Chuck Todd on on the Daily Meet the Press show was talking about there there's a rumor that that a big name is gonna get into the race, a big name. Uh, no one's excited about the field. The big name is gonna get in. The big name turned out to be Deval Patrick and and uh, he got a, a thousand one hundred eighty seven votes in New Hampshire. Man, I, I am old enough to remember the media hype in that guy, and he fell flat. Um, well, what actually happened is that Bernie Sanders pulled it off. Now, here's here's the thing. The media hype is that Bernie Sanders did not do as well now as he did in 2016, that Pete, uh, Pete Buttigieg won a number of counties that Bernie Sanders had won in 2016, and Amy Klobuchar won a number of counties that Hillary Clinton had won in um, in 2016. In 2016, uh, Waterville Valley and uh, Sandwich uh, County in New Hampshire, Amy Klobuchar won those. The, those are Republican areas of the state that Amy Klobuchar won. She also won the the uh, Hearts area and, and the Millsfield area. These are all, in fact, she won it. Uh, <laughs> there were only two votes cast, uh, but she got 40% of the vote. Uh, that's somewhat notable. I mean, some of these areas are very, very tiny in the number of votes that they have reported, and yet she was able to dominate in some of those areas. Francistown as well, and, and Harrisville, she was able to, to do very well in those areas. Those are Republican areas of the state. Those are areas Hillary Clinton did well in 2016. Uh, and, and But Bernie Sanders, I mean, he just kind of swept the corners of the state. What's so notable about Buttigieg is he did very well uh, along the uh, border with Massachusetts. That was supposed to be the Elizabeth Warren area. And they didn't pull it off. Uh, Buttigieg was able to get it. Bernie Sanders got some of them. Uh, but then there was a, a hardcore section in the uh, in in southern New Hampshire, around the, the urban core there, where Buttigieg did actually very well. Um, the other interesting thing is that the in uh, Salisbury, New Hampshire, other candidates did very well, and and I'm wondering if that may be the write-in for um, for for yes, that that would be a Bloomberg write-in. Same same in Dixville Notch, that area. Bloomberg uh, won the write-in vote in Dixville. Same in the the Salisbury, New Hampshire area. Now, uh, what does all this have to say? Let, let, let me give you some just detailed analysis here before I give you give you my thoughts on this. Bernie Sanders, of course, was not going to do as well as he was going to do in 2016 because in 2016 there were two candidates. There was Hillary Clinton and there was Bernie Sanders. This time you've got a million candidates running. And Bernie Sanders, there are some new candidates running. Um, Buttigieg and Klobuchar capturing the imagination. Warren as well, to some degree, capturing the imagination. Uh, the fact that Joe Biden came in fifth in New Hampshire really means his campaign is toast. He's going to try to rebound in South Carolina. And there's just no way at this point. Now, you've got a lot of people come to Joe Biden's defense. This is elder abuse. Can I just, as an aside, this is at this point elder abuse with Joe Biden. Someone from Team Obama, Barack Obama himself, if he really loves Joe Biden the way he claims, needs to stage an intervention at this point and say, Joe, no. I mean, they need to do that. It's sad to see. It's time for Joe to, to hang up the hat. The problem, though, is this. Joe Biden has to stay on until South Carolina. Why? Because Mike Bloomberg's not on the ballot. If Joe Biden were to falter or fail in South Carolina, that could give Bernie Sanders an insurmountable edge. 
So Biden at this point has to hang on so Bernie can't pivot South Carolina's voters to him. And then Biden can get out when he doesn't do well after South Carolina. I mean, if Biden is able to get down to South, or if um, Bernie Sanders is able to get down to South Carolina and consolidate voters down there, including black voters, uh, he's going to be unstoppable. And if he can, if he can hold his on on Super Tuesday, remember the, the the difference between the Democratic primaries and the Republican primaries. You, you do need to understand this: the Republican primary is baked in for someone to get some level of momentum, uh, and but also for others to have an opportunity to, to pull upsets. Now, what I mean by that is the Republican Party primary for president starts off with proportional representation. As long as you meet a certain percentage of the vote, you will get some delegates. So in Iowa, uh, you had Ted Cruz and Donald Trump got delegates. In New Hampshire, it was um, John Kasich and Ted Cruz and uh, and um, Donald Trump. And then you pivot to South Carolina and Trump did so big, he got all the delegates, even though it was proportional. But then along the way in the Republican Republican Party, there are winner-take-all states as well. So, for example, Georgia, I believe, was the first winner-take-all state. Uh, Marco Rubio dominated the suburban Atlanta area. and Every county that touched Atlanta, Marco Rubio won, and every other county, Donald Trump won. Uh, and Donald Trump got all the delegates because he, even though Rubio actually did very well because he won those suburban areas that are have high population, Donald Trump got everything. The Democratic Party does not have winner-take-all states. So once a winner begins to, to build a lead, as long as he comes in first by three or four percentage points, he continues to get more delegates delegates than everyone else. No one can draw a line in the sand and say, hey, I'm going to go to Georgia, draw a line in the sand. I'm going to pour my resources in. It's a winner take all state. If I win it, I get 26 delegates. Nobody's doing that. They can't do that because the Democratic Party is is not set up to do that. There, there's no design for the Democratic Party to do that. So if Bernie Sanders travels around the country and he he's slightly behind in delegates right now because Buttigieg got slightly more in uh, Iowa. By the way, that, there's there's a phenomenal thing here. Buttigieg has had less people vote for him in Iowa and in New Hampshire, but he's leading in delegates because of the Iowa screw up. So there's a sense of grievance being, nur- grievance being nursed by the Sanders people already uh, that you got Buttigieg, who, by the way, Buttigieg wants to get rid of the Electoral College. He thinks that it should be uh, whoever gets the most votes win. And they called him out on this. Where, where was this? Hang on. I got this audio from the other day. I think it was Jake Tapper uh, who called him out on this. Joining me now, 2020 presidential candidate, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Mayor Buttigieg, thanks so much for joining us. Both you and Bernie Sanders have declared victory in Iowa. I want you to take a listen to a comment you made when you were asked about the Electoral College in a CNN town hall last year. At risk of sounding a little simplistic, one thing I believe is that in an American presidential election, the person who gets the most votes ought to be the person who wins. If you use that standard in Iowa, it appears that Senator Sanders got 6,000 more votes than you, uh, even if you currently lead in the state delegate equivalent. Is it fair to say, using the Buttigieg standard, that Senator Sanders won the Iowa caucus? (laughs) Well, this is about getting delegates, but uh, I'm happy to congratulate uh, Senator Sanders on a fantastic night, just as we had a terrific night. A huge validation for the message of this campaign, for uh, what we have to say about bringing everybody into a shared vision that I think is going to defeat Donald Trump in November. Are you essentially saying it was a tie? Um, I'll let other folks characterize it, but but sure. I mean, it was it was a great night for uh, Bernie, and it was a, a phenomenal night for us. 
Okay, I want to replay this because you need to pick up on something. Listen to Join this. Join me now, 2020 presidential candidate, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Mayor Buttigieg, thanks so much for joining us. Both you and Bernie Sanders have declared victory in Iowa. I want you to take a listen to a comment you made when you were asked about the Electoral College in a CNN town hall last year. At risk of sounding a little simplistic, one thing I believe is that in an American presidential election, the person who gets the most votes ought to be the person who wins. If you use that standard in Iowa, it appears that Senator Sanders got 6,000 more votes than you, uh, even if you currently lead in the state delegate equivalent. Is it fair to say, using the Buttigieg standard, that Senator Sanders won the Iowa caucus? <laughs> well, this is about getting delegates. This is about getting delegates, not the popular. Um, the, the November presidential election will be about getting electoral college votes. Or in other words, delegates to the Electoral College. So same standard, is it not? I mean that that's 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 the thing. You're you're running to get you're not running to win the popular vote. You're running to get the electoral electoral college delegates. And yet Pete Buttigieg says when it comes to November, it should be whoever gets the most pop whoever gets the most votes wins. Well, should not not standard still apply in, in Iowa and New Hampshire where Bernie Sanders got the most votes? And that's the thing. The media is is fixated on Buttigieg doing as well as he has, and in fact leading in delegates right now. Remember, let's let's go back real quick to to 2016. What happened in Iowa? Ted Cruz surprised everyone by winning the most votes and getting the most delegates. And what was the media headline? Marco Rubio came in third and it was Rubio's race to lose. I'm not making that up. I was there. Marco Rubio was the winner in Iowa. If you listen to press coverage, even though Ted Cruz came in first and then what happened in New Hampshire, New Hampshire, Trump came in first, uh, Ted Cruz came in second and Kasich came in third. No, Kasich came in second and, and Ted Cruz came in third. And, and the headline was Kasich. Kasich is surging. Kasich is surging. Kasich's going to go all the way. It was never about Trump and it was never about Cruz. It was always about the guy who who pulled on the heartstrings of the media. And, and it was Rubio in Iowa because they hated Ted Cruz. They hated the idea of Ted Cruz being the nominee. And so when when Cruz did not do as well in New Hampshire, they rubbed it in that Cruz did not do well. They ignored Rubio. Jeb Bush wound up dropping out, but it, it, they they blew Cruz out of the water. They totally ignored his win in Iowa. And then in New Hampshire, they totally ignored Trump's win and, and, and praised Kasich. The same thing is happening now. The media is clearly trying to pick winners and losers in the way it, it talks about these races. Bernie Sanders has won the popular vote in the Democratic Party. He won New Hampshire. And the headlines say Sanders wins. But when you actually read the news article and you listen to the commentary on TV where there are no headlines, they just tell you what happened. Uh, they, they fixate, fixate on anybody but Sanders. Now, I will tell you, there is, I, I'm, I'm beginning to believe there's got to be some level of a coordinated talking point among the Republicans because you're hearing, oh, they're trying to steal it from Bernie again. They're trying to steal it from Bernie. They know deep down in the data, it shows that in 2016, a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters got so mad at the process, they wound up sitting home. They didn't participate. And I think there are a lot of Republicans who are trying to do that now because there's a lot of Republicans been saying, oh, they're stealing it from Bernie again. They're not really stealing it from Bernie. Bernie's winning. 
But it is very similar news coverage to 2016 where the media is fixating not on the first place guy, but on the second and third place guys as a way to not have to talk about the first place guy. Uh, The media really is engaged in a way to try to pick winners and losers. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program today, got any questions about Iowa, the state of play, any of it, feel free to call in, pick my brain. Just remember, your job is to ask questions to make me look good. (laughs) The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. E-R-I-C-K, if you go to Emory, uh, the phone number translates to 877-973-7425 if you want to call in. All right, uh, let me let me give you a little more on the state of play before I get into the larger commentary here. I'm trying to be good about giving you guys the analysis of what's actually happening and then telling you what I think about it and and trying to force myself to be as objective as possible in this. Uh, You know, it drives some of you crazy, I realize. But honestly, I just I see so many people these days just just as an aside, as an aside. Uh, I see so many people these days wanting to rush into their partisan spin zone and not actually look at reality as it is and, and try to analyze reality. And I would much rather for my listeners, I, I'm I'm not a, a talking points guy. I don't get the memos. I don't attend the, you know, they actually have brief, both parties, actually. If you're in the in the media and, and you, you are somewhat prominent and you're partisan, you can actually call the DNC or the RNC or various campaigns and they'll give you what to say. They're really good about it. When I was at CNN, I was always shocked uh, in, in the general election in 2012 uh, when Ron it was it was Romney Obama. There were a lot of people from the RNC who would reach out and say, hey, here, here are some things to think about when you go on TV. It's like, I think for myself and I think you're wrong on some of this stuff. And I turned out being right. Um, but, you know, I, I've done politics. I've run campaigns. I, I, I've done polling. I've done mail. I've, I've done TV ads and radio ads. I, I know how this stuff works. And I, I know the BS and I know the spin. And I would rather play it straight with you guys. And then I'll tell you what I think about it. And playing it straight here, Bernie Sanders does have some trouble because when you look at the exit polling out of New Hampshire, and as I mentioned yesterday, primary exits are not as reliable as general election exits, but they're still pretty doggone reliable, way more reliable than your general uh, public opinion surveys. So the surveys showed that about 60% of voters in New Hampshire wanted someone who could beat Trump. And 30% of voters in New Hampshire wanted someone who agreed with them ideologically. And the 60% who want someone who can beat Trump did not vote for Bernie Sanders. It's pretty clear the way the race uh, divided. You had uh, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Warren, Biden. You even had some write-ins for Bloomberg. You had Tom Steyer, people who they thought could beat Trump. And Bernie Sanders consolidated the lead of those who wanted someone who agreed with them. Bernie Sanders, the the 21% of voters, if I recall right, were uh, somewhat liberal. 35% were, uh, or no, 21% were very liberal. 35% were somewhat liberal. 40% were uh, moderate. Uh, Barely any were conservative. Less than 10% were conservative. Uh, I mean, the majority of the people who showed up consider themselves moderate, uh, center left. But Bernie Sanders consolidated the liberals and picked up some of the somewhat liberal 
and the other split the field. So you've got this field split, and it's very much like what happened to the Republicans in 2016, where everybody wanted to be, they really dismissed Trump as being viable, and they thought it was Cruz. Cruz was the problem. And nobody wanted to step aside because they all wanted a drubbing of Cruz, and they wanted to use Trump to stop Cruz. Well, turns out they used Trump so well to stop Cruz that Trump wound up winning. And many of these people you will see now humping Donald Trump's leg on a regular basis who absolutely despise the guy, uh, but they, they used him as a faithful tool to stop Ted Cruz, who they wanted to stop. They did not want Cruz to be the nominee, not because they didn't think he could beat Hillary, but because they hated his guts. And look what happened. Well, you got very much the same phenomenon here. The moderates and the centrists can't get out of the race. They can't help themselves. And all of them want to be the one to beat Bernie. So Bernie is going to wind up being the one who leads. Fascinating dynamics. Hello, hello. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Rapid pivots in the press today. Uh, and But uh, before I get there, I want to play you some of the sounds of last night with the candidates. Here's Bernie Sanders. Victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. Revolution and beat Buttigieg. Now we we are clear-eyed about the challenge before us, and we must be equally clear about the choice at hand. My competitors and I share the same fundamental goals: bringing balance to our economy, guaranteeing health care to every American, combating a climate crisis, and a rising tide of gun violence. But we do differ in what we believe it will take to make that happen. In this election season, we have been told by some that you must either be for a revolution or you are for the status quo. But where does that leave the rest of us? Most Americans don't see where they fit in that polarized vision. And we can't defeat the most divisive president in modern American history by tearing down anybody who doesn't agree with us 100% of the time. And Amy Klobuchar. Hello, America. I'm Amy Klobuchar, and I will beat Donald Trump. Now, uh, this happened at the Elizabeth Warren rally. It was somewhat different. This is how she entered the stage. It was amazing. It is common, by the way, uh, for candidates to lose their voice on the on the campaign trail and sound like deep voice. Uh, Warren and her supporters. I mean, again, again, we don't need to play the rest of that. That was at the Warren campaign last night in New Hampshire before she fled the state. They, they seem eager to move on. Uh, in the American spectator, or no, the, the spectator, there's an American spectator, but there's the spectator, which now has an American publication, and their headline is Elizabeth Warren's Trail of Tears. <laughs> oh, and, and well, there, Joe Biden fled the state and went to South Carolina. We just heard from the first two of 50 states, two of them, not all the nation, not half the nation. Not a quarter of the nation, not 10%, two, two. Now where I come from, that's the opening bell, not the closing bell. 
And uh, the fight to end Donald Trump's presidency is just beginning. Just beginning. Thank you. It is important that Iowa and Nevada have spoken. Poor old Joe. I feel sorry for him. I really do. Uh, this at this point is elder abuse. He's now the president is now laughing. By the way, Joe Biden was the guy that the the Republicans were concerned about. He genuinely was con- the Republicans were concerned about Joe Biden. They they thought he was the one who would be. I mean, and all the polling said it. Every poll everywhere, including the Republican internal polling, showed that Joe Biden was the guy who could beat Trump. It, Joe Biden even turned that into the ads, I, and it's just, it was, it's kind of sad to see. It's stumbling. It's mumbling. Not pretty. But we'll see how he does. You never know. You never know. The only time you knew for sure was the Trump campaign. Trump was going to win. Do you think he can turn it around in South Carolina? He could always turn it around. You know, I think it's not going to be easy. Uh, I think he can turn it around, yeah. I think he has a shot. He's got... Probably almost as good a shot as anyone, but uh, he's going to have to work. He's going to have to work very hard, much harder than they thought. Don't forget, when he first ran, I called him 1% Joe, because every time he ran, he only got 1%. And then Obama took him off the uh, garbage heap. But he only got 1%, right, John? You know that. 1% Joe, but now he's, uh, what, 19% Joe? It's better. He's doing better. He's made a lot of progress. But it's going to be it's going to be very interesting. I think we have we're going to have a very interesting Democrat race. And I think we're going to have a very interesting election. Uh, yes. Yes, we are. All right. Arlette signs with the Biden campaign in South Carolina. And Dan, I can't think of anything more illustrative of the kind of night Vice President Biden is having than the fact that his party in South Carolina does not even have a TV for people to watch. Or that he's in South Carolina. <laughs> or that he's in South Carolina, too. That's the other detail. Um, but he does have an argument to make that uh, he, last poll I saw, he was at 49% mm-hmm. in the African-American community, mm-hmm. and Mayor Pete Buttigieg was at 0% in the African-American community. That was a, a Q poll nationwide. Uh, and he does have a path forward in the sense that uh, he you know, does well with African-American yeah. voters, and that's 60% of the electorate in South Carolina he, uh, in the Democratic primary. He does, but even in that poll, I was just looking at it, he's lost a lot of the share of the black vote, which he had earlier on, because that has always been uh, what his campaign called his firewall, uh, because they didn't anticipate him doing well in, in the first two states. This but, is uh, the Jill, Dr. Jill Biden, his wife, coming yes. in and speaking to supporters. And, and so we expect uh, the former vice president to come out any minute. But I think we just also have to take a moment and just digest the fact that a former two-term vice president of the United States uh, didn't even place, it looks like, we're not done yet, but it looks like he's headed towards not even placing in the top four. Right. I mean, getting single digits of support, not even getting enough uh, support to get one delegate from New Hampshire. I mean, that is stunning. Now, he, at least at the end, set himself up for that by starting the debate, as you mentioned, with with Arlette uh, at the last debate, which everybody in New Hampshire who I talked to was watching by saying that they wouldn't uh, support him. Mm. Still, it is it is by far one of the biggest storylines of the night, despite the fact that his campaign worked very hard to set expectations at these levels. Yeah, it, 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 y'all, it, it's at this point, it really is almost elder abuse. In fact, I was talking to a, a, a Republican senator yesterday who said, 
that he was he's just appalled that he likes Joe Biden very much. They obviously disagree on a lot of things, but Jill and Joe Biden are super nice people. And it's just abusive at this point to see his campaign dragging him out. And, and half the time he doesn't know where he is. He's, he, he loses his his memory. And it's just sad to see. You know, the other thing that's sad to see, if we're honest about it, is Andrew Yang. I, I thoroughly liked Andrew Yang. I disagreed with him on everything. I mean, he's super liberal. But he was just the nicest guy, and and he was so nice uh, on the campaign trail. His supporters are nice. I just saw somebody online saying that the difference between Sanders and and uh, Yang supporters is that if you if you call if you say Bernie Sanders is wrong, that you'll get called the c word and a bunch of other stuff. If you say Andrew Yang is wrong, his supporters will reach out and say, "Hey, uh, we've got a spreadsheet backing up our data. Can we get together at a time convenient for you and compare data?" I mean, it really, it, it's remarkable, but he didn't get a lot of votes. Uh, they had him on CNN this morning. And yes, I am playing a lot of audio this morning. Uh, you know, I, I'm somewhat sensitive lately because I've had three people email me uh, saying you, you've played so much audio lately. We want to hear you. And I appreciate you want to hear me. I do, but I also feel like I need to set relevant context for you. And sometimes that requires relying on the media and uh, particularly because I like Andrew Yang. I want to hear him talk to CNN about getting out of the race. You changed, uh, I think, the party. You changed the race. What do you think you left it with in this process? They're so respectful to a guy that just lost. You, you No, he didn't change anything, honestly. I mean, I like the guy, but he didn't change anything. Well, I hope one of the big lessons that the other Democratic candidates take from my campaign is that we can't just run against Trump. We have to run against the reasons that got him elected, that he's a symptom of a disease that's been building up in our communities for years, and we have to get to the harder work of curing the disease. Too many Americans do not feel like there's a place for them in the 21st century economy that is transforming before our eyes, that we need to start rebalancing the most extreme winner-take-all economy in the history of the world and put more economic resources directly into families' hands. Okay. You're out of the race now. Who is the Democratic candidate best able to do that, to, to, to counter not just Trump himself, but Trump the message in the general election? Are you endorsing anyone? Well, uh, right now we're still uh, obviously like reflecting on our, our own campaign. Uh, I'm already on the record saying I will support whoever the Democratic nominee is. And this process is very important for voters to make their voices heard uh, and see what the direction of the party is. Uh, so no endorsements um, right now, though other candidates have been reaching out to me over the last number of hours, which I appreciate a great deal. <laughs> no endorsement. Hey, you know, that was Jim Scudo asking that question. He could have just come out and said, are you going to endorse anyone as opposed to, you, you got to find somebody who could beat the president. We, we, we got to beat the president. I mean, you've got to beat the president. And so are you going to endorse anyone, Andrew? Endorsement so much. You know the only endorsement that actually I think couldn't matter? If Elizabeth Warren doesn't endorse Bernie Sanders when she gets out and she's getting out, when Elizabeth Warren gets out, if she doesn't endorse Bernie Sanders, because she and Sanders are ideologically alike, although she wants to call herself a capitalist to her bones and she and Bernie now have some bad blood. Uh, if she endorses someone other than Sanders, that really sends a strong signal that um, she, she has no faith in Bernie to lead the revolution. If she does endorse Bernie, it, I think it would be more expected ideologically, but still at the same time, it's a it's it's a very different relationship there. Um, and my goodness, it's 
I don't know that endorsements matter. The, the ones that matter are the surprises. And it would be a surprise if, if Warren endorsed, say, a Bloomberg after railing on billionaires and money in politics. That, that, would, that would matter greatly. And I suspect she may go with a Klobuchar or a Buttigieg. She was saying very nice stuff. She was defending Buttigieg last night in New Hampshire, saying that essentially she didn't use any names, but she went after Joe Biden pretty aggressively that uh, when you flee the state and, and attack good candidates for their record and, and claim that they have less accomplishment than you. You can burn down the party to be the winner and uh, blah. I, I'm really waiting for someone to do a Dean scream, but but they didn't do it. Uh, one last little bit of audio here, but before we before we go, and, and we got to spend a little time here setting the stage here, uh, but there there are a couple of pieces of audio. I shouldn't say one last one, but, but I want to play Katie Turr uh, on MSNBC. Well, let me ask you about how things look down there in South Carolina. Joe Biden had enjoyed, has enjoyed a, a strong support among the African-American community, the black community down there, but uh, it seems to be breaking apart a little bit. Look at this most recent poll. His support from African-Americans now sits at only 27 percent. Michael Bloomberg, 22 percent. That is plus 15 uh, since January 28th. Bernie Sanders, 19 plus two. Are you concerned that a, that a, poor, a poor finish here tonight might send a message to voters in South Carolina and beyond that Joe Biden is not the most electable candidate? This is sad for Joe. It is. It's sad for Joe. But that's okay. I mean, Bernie could, Bernie could, um, he could go all the way. Now, I, I got to tell you what's happening now. This is actually really funny. Bernie Sanders is pivoting to where new to, to Nevada. And by the way, I learned this when I was at CNN. It is Nevada. It's not Nevada. Believe it or not, there was a there was a debate. It was a, pres, a Republican presidential debate in 2012, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah, the the 2012 cycle. Uh, and and I went out to Nevada for the debate, and I was admonished by who was it at the time? Oh, I can't remember. But anyway, uh, we all sat in a room. We had to have a briefing, and we were admonished. You say Nevada, not Nevada. That that people not from Nevada say Nevada, and people from Nevada say Nevada. And so say Nevada, and people will think you're local, and, and Nevadans will get offended. Um, it, it, it's like I said a couple of weeks ago on the radio. I, I mentioned Ludowicki and, and got a bunch of people say, well, Ludowicki, well, Ludowicki. Don't mispronounce it. I just come on, people. If you want me to pronounce it, spell it in a way that's pronounceable, like Cairo instead of Cairo, and and Vienna and Vienna, and, uh, Houston and Houston. I've never understood that, but nonetheless, I, I digress. Uh, so Sanders is flying out to Nevada to rally the caucus. By the way, the caucuses are having terrible, terrible technology problems. Oh my goodness, it, it is Iowa 2.0, and they're freaking out about it. They've got a week from Saturday to fix it. And uh, so uh, the, the Culinary Union in Nevada is, is um, passing these things out. Uh, they're opposed to Bernie Sanders. Uh, and a <laughs> it's just okay. You can clearly tell that, that the, these people, they're, they're out to get... Um, they're out to get Bernie. So let me read you this. So Joe Biden, he will protect culinary health care. <laughs> What is, what is, he'll protect culinary health care. <laughs> you, you won't have antibiotic chicken breasts. He'll protect it. Bernie Sanders will end culinary health care. 
da da da. Healthcare, culinary healthcare. He will require Medicare for all and lower drug prices. Oh my goodness gracious! Culinary healthcare. So Bernie is pivoting to Nevada, and the culinary healthcare workers are opposed to Bernie. Do you know who who um, controls the culinary healthcare workers? That would be. Harry Reid, who sadly, Harry, he's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's not doing well. Um, I'm not a huge fan. I always wanted to interview Harry Reid, to be honest with you. He's not doing well, but he still has a lot of power in the Nevada Democratic circles, and he wants to stop Bernie Sanders. So the culinary health care, or the culinary union, <laughs> the culinary health care, culinary union, uh, is uh, putting out this flyer. They're supposedly nonpartisan. It says Donald Trump under healthcare, dismantle Obamacare under good jobs, weaken unions and right to organize under immigration in DACA and TPS separate families, no path to citizenship. Oh, sounds good to me. Uh, under the Democrats, we got uh, Joe Biden is first. He will protect culinary healthcare expand Obamacare with public option and lower drug prices. He will strengthen organizing collective bargaining and the right to strike, and he will protect DACA and provide a pathway to citizenship. Um, the, the same under Buttigieg, they say the same thing. The same under Klobuchar, the same thing. The same under Tom Steyer, they say the same thing. Uh, Elizabeth Ward is is Medicaid, Medicare for all, replace culinary health care after three-year transition and lower drug prices, but then the same on everything else. And then Bernie Sanders, he will end culinary health care and require Medicare for all. We, it, it's hilarious to me that the union in Nevada is trying to stop a socialist. You would think they would be ideological, but my goodness gracious, uh, no, they want to stop him. They're worried about him, and he, he doesn't do well with Hispanic voters, and he doesn't do well with black voters, and Nevada is going to have a high concentration of Hispanic voters and white voters, not very many black voters, but then you swing from Nevada into South Carolina, and can Bernie consolidate the lead? They're starting to get worried about it, even among the union activists, that Bernie could actually do it. And then poor old Joe Biden just floundering around. You know, first of all, my, my producer says I got distracted in the last segment. I apologize, but culinary health care is totally perplexing and Bernie apparently wants to abort it. I, I have no idea. Now, next, uh, I, I want to tell you that there is a striking contrast. I'm seeing this on social media and it actually is a good point. Andrew Yang says one of the reasons he's dropping out is he sees no path forward to viability and he doesn't want people to spend their money on him and contribute to his campaign if, if he doesn't see a path forward. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Warren, who clearly has no path forward at this point, uh, is out there uh, talking about how a, a girl with only six bucks gave her her money. Uh, unbelievable. Now, saying that, I want to get off of Iowa for a minute. We'll come back to Iowa and we got to get into the Roger Stone stuff. When we come back, we'll get into the Roger Stone stuff. But. I want you to ponder the story as we had to break. Uh, 
A man and woman have been indicted on charges. They allegedly terminated the woman's pregnancy by taking medication they ordered from India, after which they allegedly hid the baby's corpse in a shoebox. Uh, Kalina Gillum and Braden Mull have been indicted on one count each of involuntary manslaughter, child endangerment, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. The couple appeared via video monitor in Licking County Court Monday. According to the prosecutor, Gillum took 12 uh, mesoprostal tablets she and Mole ordered from India with the intention to induce labor and terminate her pregnancy. She was in her third trimester. She was 28 or 29 weeks pregnant at the time. According to Hayes, Gillum gave birth to a male child in the bathroom of the apartment. At no time did either of them call 911. The following day, uh, she went to the hospital, at which point medical staff contacted law enforcement. <clears throat> they went to the apartment, law enforcement did, and they found the baby's body inside a shoebox inside a trash can. If you're a supporter of abortion rights, are you supportive of what's happening to this woman? Uh, 28, 29 weeks pregnant, she gives birth and lets the baby die. She attempted the abortion and it failed. Uh, how, how can you be, how can you not support her? Um, the rest of us, we know why we can't. Just a quick time out from the show to thank one of my favorite sponsors, one of the products I use on a daily basis multiple times. That would be my Quip electric toothbrush. And I really am a customer, and I really was before they started advertising for me. That's the way I like to do these ads. I like to endorse a product I'm already using, and Quip is one that I use, my wife uses, and both of my kids use, and we've used it before I started advertising. They make great electric toothbrushes. They're not the super fancy expensive ones, and you get a better clean. Why do you get a better clean? Well, because the quip you brush your teeth for two minutes and it pulses every 30 seconds so you know how to reposition it in your mouth and for those two minutes dennis wants you to brush your teeth for two minutes you get a great clean with great sonic vibrations that really get your teeth clean and you know i've got invisalign braces so i've got those attachments a lot of stuff gets stuck in them and behind the little attachments and with the quip i can always clean my teeth the way they need to be clean it is a great toothbrush and it's not going to break the bank it's just well made you can tell it's made by dentist and designers together if you go to getquip.com slash erickson right now you can get a quip and you can start with a brush head refill subscription where every three months they send you a new brush head they even include a battery and you get your first refill for free that's your first refill free at getquip.com slash erickson it's g-e-t-q-u-i-p.com slash erickson e-r-i-c-k-s-o-n quip the good habits company Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, I will try to have better focus this hour, except squirrel. Nope, sorry. I just actually saw this story in the Washington Post as I'm clicking away. To try to focus, I see this story, and now, yet again, here I am, distracted. Um, my goodness, this is kind of sad. Um, World-famous pianist Magnificent, $200,000 piano dropped and destroyed by movers. Oh, my goodness, it was handmade in Italy, outfitted with a rare fourth pedal invented by the piano maker Fazioli, and was valued at roughly $200,000. Angela Hewitt owned the piano. She was moving 
and they dropped the piano and it smashed that just that breaks my heart um i cannot play the piano to say you know i i i taught myself when i was a kid grew up in dubai i realize you're not here for this but you're just going to have to humor me for just a minute when i was a kid in dubai my parents decided to get me piano lessons and i absolutely hated the piano lessons i didn't much care for the teacher and and he he didn't appreciate the fact that we had things like american holidays we liked like halloween i distinctly remember uh that he decided that we were going to have piano lessons on halloween and i wanted to go trick-or-treat with my friends and that was it i had enough I couldn't do it, um, but I could teach myself. I could read music well enough to teach myself, and there were some songs. There there was one by Bach and one by Brahms that I le- taught myself how to play, and I love the sound of the piano, and I love having a piano. We've got a piano in our house. I would love to get a grand piano, but first got to get a, get my mansion uh, that I build, um, and it's just, I, and I know Fazioli. I, it's, it's an incredible brand, and it's just terrible. Uh, Angela Hewitt uh, was uh, having her movers move the piano and they had dropped it and it's unsalvageable and it was a one of a kind piano she's had it for 17 years uh and she tried to get fazioli to to save it and oh my goodness that just that breaks my heart Sad news as we begin the second hour of this program. I'm sure you all want to know about Angela Hewitt's piano. I did. I'm fascinated by stuff like this. And but you know what? I, I swear whenever I move whenever I build my mansion after I win the lottery or Chris Burns does good investments for me, um, then I'm going to get a grand piano. Now, we will move on to other news. We need to talk about the Roger Stone situation. You know, all the prosecutors resigned in the prosecution of Roger Stone and I have a hard time being outraged about this one, and I need to explain why. And I realize um, that I'm supposed to be outraged by this. The press tells me I'm supposed to be outraged by it. My never-Trump friends tell me I'm supposed to be outraged by it. Even some of my my pro-Trump friends are outraged by it. Here's what happened. Uh, Roger Stone's prosecutors from the Mueller investigation team wanted him to be in jail for seven years. And the president blew up about it and said, this is unfair and unjust. And and how dare they? You had the guy from Congress who was leaking stuff about the president and he only got two months in jail. Why is Roger Stone, who just lied about coordinating with WikiLeaks, why why is he or whatever? I don't even know what all they're charging him with, quite frankly. Uh, But it had a lot to do with the WikiLeaks collaboration and lying to prosecutors. They, They wanted him to be in jail for seven years. And the president blew up about it, so the Department of Justice intervened, and they revised the uh, the sentencing or declaration of what they wanted to the judge. They lowered it, I think, to two years to placate the president. And the media, of course, is outraged by this. There is general outrage across the press that the president was able to do this. First of all, I need to tell you my view, uh, contrary to the view you hear articulated in so much of the press, the attorney general uh, is not somehow a a quasi-independent agency from the president. The power of the attorney general is derived from the president. He is a cabinet officer. The president is the executive. I believe in the unitary executive. And I believe that uh, the attorney general has to do what the president says. And if you don't like it, well, then impeach the president or impeach the attorney general. But that's just the reality of it. Um, And I got to tell you, uh, the the outrage over this, I think, is also crazy. Now, why do I think the outrage over this is crazy? Very straightforward here. 
when you look at what all of the other people, and this is the, the revised Department of Justice guidelines. The Department of Justice came in, they retracted the, the request for seven years, and they came back with two years. And the reason they came back with two years is not because the president browbeat them. But because when you look at um, Scooter Libby, when you look at Mike Flynn, when you look at a bunch of other people who were similarly situated and charged in the same way with Roger Stone, their sentencing recommendation was two years. And the Justice Department looked at that. The attorney general looked at that and said, well, this isn't good. All of these people who we charged in similarly situated environments and, and setups and what they did went two years in jail and somehow we want to now have seven years in jail for Roger Stone. Now you can think it's wrong that the president blew it up and you can think it's wrong that the department of justice intervened, but I got to tell you, it makes a lot of sense here when the guidelines for these prior convictions were all two years for the justice department to say, okay, wait a second. Uh, maybe we actually shouldn't be going with seven years for Roger Stone. Uh, and I don't care for Roger. I don't like Roger Stone. I, I'm, I'm not a big Roger Stone fan, and he deserves to go to jail for what he did. But there's another angle here as well that everybody wants to dance around, and that is the president has pardoning power. If Roger Stone were to go to jail for seven years, the president could commute his sentence to two years. So why would the Justice Department want to pour all these resources into sending Roger Stone to jail for seven years, knowing that the president could then undo it? What a waste of resources. The president said it was too long based on all the other people similarly situated and charged over the last three decades. Uh, he was overcharged. It was a harsher sentence. So scale it back to something that is more in line with everybody else. That makes sense to me, y'all. That makes sense to me. And I, I don't think that any of us should be worked into a frenzy over it, quite frankly. But the media is going to do what the media is going to do. R remember, everything that this president does is subject to unlimited outrage by the press. And frankly, there are things I think that are outrageous. And there are things I think that, that genuinely do need to be reined in about this president. And there are things I think that uh, I wish this president wouldn't do or tweet or say, but not all of it needs to be dialed up to 11 on a 10-point scale. And that's why so many people don't take any of this stuff seriously anymore. I mean, if we're really honest about it, there is a lot of outrage out there over things that the president does that don't necessarily warrant the outrage that they get. If the president were, and you know, I realize it's a dumb joke and it's repeated so often and it's bipartisan and everybody says it about the other side, but but it really is one of those situations where if the president uh, were to come out tomorrow and cure cancer, the headlines would be the president puts a lot of people out of work. Or if the president uh, were to walk on water, the headline would be the president can't swim. That, that's kind of the way it is at this point. Uh, the, the media and, and so many people have become so broken by the president and so uh, wrapped into derangement by the president of the United States on what they do. I mean, just consider, for example, the, 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 um, the Joe Walsh stuff. Joe Walsh was a Tea Party conservative who loved Donald Trump until he didn't, and decided to run against Donald Trump. By the way, other uh, other in New Hampshire got more votes than Joe Walsh. 
so so non non entities got more votes than Joe Walsh got in New Hampshire. Uh, now, in fairness, uh, Joe Walsh suspended his campaign after Iowa and, and blasted Republicans and the Republican Party as a cult of personality and was deeply insulting to him. But uh, Joe Walsh is a non-starter. No one cares what Joe Walsh thinks. But he suddenly got massive exposure on the media because he hates the president. If you want to go on TV and talk about the president, you get all sorts of exposure. You know, I've experienced this, by the way. I was one of the original Never Trumpers in 2016, and, you know, they took me off Fox. I had a, a contract with, I got paid every week by Fox News to not appear on the network. It was fantastic. Uh, in 2018, I decided I was ready to be done with them. They were ready to be done with me. I was like, oh, and, and honest to goodness, I did more media hits through 2018 and 2019 than I did in the last two years of my Fox contract. Uh, I meet the press every month, uh, real time with uh, Bill Maher on HBO. Uh, I was on CNN, did a lot of MSNBC, even went on Al Sharpton show, actually even did some Fox News. And then I dared to say that I would support Donald Trump in 2020, given the alternatives in 2020. Uh, I wasn't going to go to a third party. I did that in 2016, and look what happened. That guy turned nuts. I wasn't going to sit it out. And so if my choice was between Republican and Democrat, I was going to go Republican. Even if I didn't particularly care for the president, many of his policies were far better than I expected. He himself, as president, has been far better than I expected. There's a lot of stuff I don't like. There are character issues that I don't like. I still think character counts. I'm really disappointed we don't have someone with better character. But just because you don't mean tweet on the Democratic side doesn't mean you have good character. You people want to chop up kids and sell them for Bart's. So I'll go with Trump. And you will not be surprised to learn uh, that the number of times I've been on TV since I said that plummeted. Haven't been on Meet the Press since, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I, I, I am, but I've got great relationships with the folks at Real Time with Bill Maher, and I still go on. Uh, and and actually had Bill uh, a couple of weeks ago throw my criticisms of Trump in my face and ask how I could support the guys. Like, have you seen the Democrats? Of course, he's a Democrat. He likes them, but. Um, I, I'm, do I wish I had a candidate that, that I could point to with my kids and say, that guy's a role model, be like him. Yeah. I would love to have somebody like that. And I don't think Trump's that guy. I, I would prefer not to have a brain biblical donkey as president who mean tweets people, but my goodness, compared to the Democrats, you're, you're darn right. I'm going to go with Donald Trump. At least we got a good economy. He's deregulated. Uh, he's been willing to pick fights with people. And frankly, uh, I, I don't know that any other Republican would have stood up for Brett Kavanaugh, given the, what the Democrats did to Brett Kavanaugh. I, I was, it was remarkable that uh, George W. Bush was behind the scenes lobbying for Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, even Bush, who I dearly liked, even if I disagreed with him on a number of things, I very much respected the man, loved the man. And I was shocked that he went for Brett Kavanaugh. I never would have thought that if he were president, he would have stood up for him. I certainly don't think Mitt Romney or John McCain or anyone like that would have even nominated a Brett Kavanaugh, let alone stood up for him. And here comes Donald Trump willing to stand up for the guy who's been disparaged in a, in a character assassination smear campaign. So you're darn right I'm going to go for Trump in 2020. But I, I just, I, I still wish that there were things that he did differently. But all, all of this is to say, going full circle here, that not everything he does is worth the outrage. 
I'm willing to call out my own, and I always have. And it's it's one of those interesting things where I, I get a lot of blowback now for saying Donald Trump bad on something than I ever did for say George Bush bad on something or Mitt Romney or John McCain bad on something. This this, this circle the wagons around Donald Trump thing it, it deeply is. In fact, uh, the exit polling in New Hampshire shows that 55 percent of Republicans who voted uh, felt more affinity to Donald Trump than for the Republican Party. Uh, the, the Republican Party is a party of Donald Trump. And uh, the voters who vote are Donald Trump voters. They're not really Republican voters. And so I understand this circle the wagon stuff and we can't say anything critical, but I, I'm sorry. I think it's my job to, 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 to call it as I see it and tell you what I think is right and what I think is wrong and, and have some underlying premise of, of, of what right and wrong is based on a grounding of morality and values and ethics as opposed to, hey, it's my team. My team can do no wrong. No, I assure you, I've seen the Braves play. They can do a lot of stuff wrong. My team can screw up, whether it's in, in politics or in baseball. And oh, my beloved Cubbies. Mm, mm, mm. Nonetheless, I digress. The outrage over the Roger Stone stuff, though, just just takes it to a new level. They can't even, the media cannot even process why the Justice Department intervened. They can say, well, the president blew him up on Twitter and, and they wanted to placate the president. Did they want Roger Stone pardoned? Because that's what would have happened. And are you going to impeach the president for that? No, you're not going to impeach the president for that. You may try, but you're not going to get it. Could it become a campaign issue? Yeah, I guess it could. But you're not going to impeach the president again, and he could pardon Roger Stone. The Justice Department intervening made sense. And the fact that all of these similarly situated defendants in the past 30 years who were similarly charged as Roger Stone were only recommended to go to jail for two years, and they wanted seven for Roger Stone, suggests the prosecutors got it wrong. Now, to their credit, you do have to give the prosecutors credit. They resigned. I personally think that Alexander Vindman and his brother— uh, be behaved as honorable patriots and doing what they thought needed to do to, I, I didn't like the, the attacks on them. I may have disagreed on them, but they followed the process. They worked with the inspector general. They weren't out there maliciously leaking to the press as far as anyone knows. And they were treated badly, but the president deserves to have a loyal staff around them. And the president was right to move them out of the white house after the impeachment inquiry. But personally, I have long thought that if they really had that much hostility to the president and thought the president was doing that much wrong, they should have resigned in protest. That's what Jim Mattis did. Jim Mattis resigned in protest to the president's policies on Syria. They should have done the same thing. I give credit to these prosecutors who all resigned in mass because they disagreed with what the DOJ and the president did. They, they all quit. One of them actually quit the case and then resigned from the Department of Justice. And I think that was the proper thing for them to do if they disagreed. But. I don't think it was improper for the Department of Justice to intervene and point out that you guys are treating Roger Stone far more harshly than we've treated any other similarly situated defendant in political cases. That's a fair point. And the fact that the media skips over that to just be outraged about the president says more about the media than it does about the president or the Department of Justice. You know, you, you can sign up for the, the daily email by texting the word show to 33777. You'll get a link to the podcast. You will sign up. I, I send out a daily email with some thoughts. Um, 
it is it's worth doing uh, if you want to be the most informed person in your circle of friends. I I, I got to spend a, a just a few minutes with Beckett Adams and, and his piece in the Washington Examiner. Um, uh, if you think about the news industry's credibility problem, um, you haven't seen anything yet in just how bad it can be. It's going to get much, much worse uh, if Tuesday slipshod news reporting and commentaries in any indication. Uh, we begin with Maggie Haberman, who tweeted the following falsehood Monday evening. Republican voter registration in New Hampshire is down roughly 20,000 voters from 2016 to now. It's a reminder that Trump's increased GOP popularity is in part because in some places the Republican registration rolls have shrunk. You got that? Um, that he's super popular with Republicans because there are fewer Republicans, and so he can keep the Republicans in lockstep by having a few of them. This has actually been debunked multiple times. In fact, Gallup, which has surveyed this for the longest amount of time, says actually the Republican Party uh, overall popularity among Americans is on the rise compared to the Democrats, which is striking. Now, uh, earlier this uh, earlier in the day, Katie Turr on MSNBC, she also was complaining about gerrymandering the Senate a while back. And, and by the way, she's a very nice person, uh, but she, she I, I don't know that she recognizes she has a liberal bias, and she does. And uh, she decided that she wanted to, to go after the economic numbers from the White House. And she actually, let me read you what she said. Uh, when I ask people if they're voting for Donald Trump, I hear about their 401ks a lot. But there are those out there who don't have a 401k. And there are those out there who this economy is really not working for them. They might have a job, but it's not a job that pays their bills. They can get a car, but it's a loan that will take 30 years. The silence is intentional. There's no such thing as a 30-year car loan. I say that as someone who has now bought multiple cars over the years. You can't get a 30-year car loan. You may be able to get out to five years, but you can't go beyond that. It's not going to happen. They're not going to do it. And then there was Christina Alessi on CNN uh, who the Bloomberg audio sh showed up, you know, the Bloomberg audio where he, the stop and frisk audio defended stop and frisk. Uh, she used to work for Bloomberg, by the way, let me read you what she says. So here's the important thing, important context here. We don't have the full tape. So this is obviously snippets that have been released. The podcaster, the writer that released this sound is clearly a Bernie supporter. If you look at his Twitter feed, he's very anti Bloomberg. He's promoted a hashtag Bloomberg is racist. And by the way, uh, the full audio is even worse for Bloomberg. The guy used some selected snippets, but the full audio that puts it in full context is actually even worse than the snippets. And yet here's this former Bloomberg reporter who now works for CNN saying, ah, this could be edited. We don't really know. And then there's Heidi Prisbyla from NBC who believes that the Bloomberg is racist, racist hashtag circulating on social media is a Kremlin plot. Never mind that audio showed up of Mike Bloomberg where he defends stop and frisk and um, sending police officers overwhelmingly into black communities and targeting black citizens to reduce crime. And it, this organically gets a hashtag going that Bloomberg is racist. And what is the result of all of this? 
You've got a reporter saying that this is a Kremlin conspiracy. No, it's it's actually fact. The, the, you know, it, it is really only going to get worse until November. No one's going to believe the press on anything by the time this is over. They are destroying their credibility in ways that are genuinely sad to see. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson. You can call in, uh, be a part of the program if you like. Uh, the number is 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. If you want to get on the recipe list, uh, you can text the word recipe to 33777. I occasionally send a re- If I remember, y'all, I've been traveling. I've been busy. You'll have to show me a little grace here. Um, it, but I will get you recipes. Uh, but you text the word recipe to 33777. And, and occasionally, I try to do it once a week, but I've been traveling a lot, so I haven't. I will send you a recipe. And uh, it should be one that anybody can make. They're not hard to make. I I do recommend a food scale. Somebody asked me the other day, if there's one thing that I would recommend in a kitchen, what would it be? I mean, the obvious one is the KitchenAid mixer. You should have a KitchenAid mixer uh, if you like to do any sort of cooking. But the other one is is a kitchen scale uh, because I am finding more and more that particularly I do bread making and baking now a lot. And having a kitchen scale is really handy. And my wife is doing macro. My goodness, it takes all the joy out of cooking. And now she's got me doing it too, macros to, to eat. Um, you know, you gotta have so many grams of protein and so many grams of carbs and so many grams of fat and it drives me insane. And and my trainer, Steven has been telling me, you gotta do this. You really want to lose weight. It's diet, not exercise. I'm like, I'm going to CrossFit every like three days a week. I'm going some days, four days a week. My, I got parts of my body that hurt. I didn't even know I had them until they started hurting. And I'm like, Oh, there's something new there. And the only reason I know it exists is because it hurts. And then doing the stinking macros and, and, ah, it just, it, it drives me crazy. Nonetheless, you gotta have a kitchen scale for that that as well because you know you've got to eat 0.2 ounces of turkey (sighs) okay we need to move on to other things um but you can call uh 877-97-ERIC one of the things that I really have wanted to talk about is the coronavirus and there is a story in Fox I'm not gonna read you this story to cause your panic please don't panic I I I hesitate to bring up the story I feel compelled to bring up the story, but nearly 200 Georgia residents are being monitored for coronavirus. Yeah, that would be Georgia in the United States, Georgia. Um, 200 Georgia residents being monitored for coronavirus here in, in Georgia where I am. Uh, but don't panic. Uh, and this this is not from a fringe conspiracy website. It's from Fox News. Uh, Georgia. Now I realize if you're on the left, you think Fox News is a conspiracy website. But come on now. Nope, nope, nope. This is Georgia health officials announced on Tuesday that around 200 residents are self-monitoring for the coronavirus virus after returning from China. None of the residents have shown symptoms of the virus and none of them had visited Hubei province the epicenter of the outbreak. Health officials reportedly didn't use the word quarantine, instead phrasing it that people are being isolated in their homes for 14 days, which is considered the virus's incubation period, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. A new paper by Chinese scientists say the period could be as long as 24 days. Officials have reportedly been calling each traveler, letting them know of the potential symptoms of the virus, and the importance of staying at home during the time frame. 
Residents under quarantine were given an online tool that notifies them when their isolation time is up. There are no reported coronavirus infections in Georgia as of Wednesday, and commercial flights have been suspended between Atlanta and China. Local experts say Georgia's processes to handle emerging diseases are better than ever. There are 13 confirmed cases of coronavirus in six states in the United States. About 393 people in 24 countries around the globe have been infected since it was first reported in December. 99% of the cases remain in China. China has had 97 more deaths on Wednesday, increasing the total to 1,113 in mainland China as the country remains closed off from the rest of the world. And 60 million people are under quarantine. That's crazy. The new infection cases declined for a second straight day with 2015 reported in the last 24 hours. The U.S. Postal Service said on Tuesday it was experiencing significant difficulty sending letters and express mail to China after airlines suspended flights. Now, I've got some more data here that you should know. Who are these 13 people? Uh, Someone, let's see, who who is this? I want to give credit to where it's due. This is also on Fox. Uh, Evie Fordham. Uh, 13 corona cases confirmed. Here's what you need to know about them. The Centers for Disease Control confirmed the 13th case, uh, bringing California's total to seven cases. The rest are in Arizona, Illinois, Massachusetts, Wisconsin, and Washington. The patient list includes two pairs of spouses. The 13th patient was evacuated from Wuhan. The patient tested negative at first and was allowed to return to quarantine at the Marine Corps Air Station in Miramar. The patient was returned to the University of California, San Diego Health on Monday. Monday for further testing. It resulted in positive. The patient has not been confirmed as a U.S. citizen. Evacuees who were on the first flight from Wuhan were set to be released from quarantine Tuesday. They are currently being assessed to make sure they remain symptom-free, and then we hope to release them. Meanwhile, China has locked down people. Uh, Major U.S. airlines have suspended flights, and here's what we know. In Arizona, there's a man in his 20s. He's the state's only uh, known carrier of the virus. He was in Wuhan and he's part of the Arizona State University community. Uh, there's a patient in San Diego is the seventh case in California. The state confirmed uh, its, its cases in January. Two patients are in Santa Clara County. Two are in nearby San, San Benito County. One is in Los Angeles. One is in Orange County. The two cases in San Benito County are spouses, one of whom traveled to China and one who did not. Uh, this is the first instance of close household person-to-person transmission in California. There's no evidence of transmission in the general public. In Illinois, there's a husband and wife who became sick. The Chinese woman is in her 60s, returned from central China, got her husband sick. In Massachusetts, there's one, a Boston man who went to Wuhan. In Washington, there's one. Uh, He also went to Wuhan. In Wisconsin, there's one. This patient had been in Beijing. So essentially, every single person who has the Wuhan flu in the United States um, is someone who went to China or is married to someone who went to China. There has been no person-to-person transmission inside the China, inside the United States except for uh, two couples, uh, one of whom the spouse went to China and came back and um, transmitted it to their spouse. Both of them, it was, it was the wives who came back and gave it to their husbands. But nonetheless... Um, That's your update on the coronavirus. It continues to wreak havoc in China and the Chinese economy. We may have economic fallout in this country because so much of our stuff is manufactured over there. But we do have in this country, in case you hear the rumors, in case it's blown out of control, 200 cases in Georgia of people who are not infected 
but are in quarantine or in isolation here in the Georgia area because they went to China. They're on a 14-day quarantine period, and they're self-reporting to the CDC. They're not leaving their houses. They're responsible American citizens, not trying to get anyone sick. So there's your update. Now, uh, let's move on to other stuff. I want to actually go to the phones, uh, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Grace is calling from Watkinsville. Grace, welcome to the Eric Erickson Show. Thank you. I- I'm disappointed in the lack of coverage that Amy Klobuchar is getting. Really? Well, you know, she's she's the headline in, in almost every major paper in the country today. Uh, well, I've been listening to the radio. So in the radio, I've been hearing about um, how uh, Bernie and how Biden and um, Elizabeth Warren yeah. are in trouble. And I haven't. And, and basically, um, Klobuchar's finish has been kind of an afterthought. So OK, that, that's fair. That's I mean, fair. So you're are, are you're voting for Klobuchar then? No. Uh, I, heck no. I'm not going to decide my vote at this point. But um She's got a lot going for her, for sure, and um, I was the one that stayed up um, four years ago and because I knew it was going to be a race, and I knew that Trump had a fighting chance. And my gut tells me that um, there are a lot of people like me out there that um, were, we were on the fence four years ago, but now we've got somebody that actually has good sense and doesn't have a lot of baggage, so... I think she's she's a good bet. Well, you know, it is interesting you say that there there's a problem for Amy Klobuchar just at an analytical level in that she polls worse among black voters than even Pete Buttigieg does. And so even some of the Claire McCaskill on on MSNBC was pointing this out that uh, she's not sure where Klobuchar can go other than propping up Bernie unless she can work on that. Now, I would suspect, Grace, that Klobuchar is going to have a massive uh, pool of fundraising here in the next 24 hours, given what happened in New Hampshire, because it really wasn't expected. Uh, It really wasn't something that people saw coming until the end of last week. They knew because of the debate on Friday she was beginning to surge. The poll stopped on Sunday, so no one knew the extent of the of it. It's like you you see the you see the person coming towards you, and then all of a sudden the lights go off, and you know the person's coming towards you, but now you can't see how close they've gotten to you before the lights go off. Uh, very much that was the way the the tracking polling was, where she got closer and closer and closer and closer as she was edging and edging, and then the the polling stopped, and we were like, "Wait, she's got momentum. We want to know what's happening." Well, they they had it on Tuesday night, and guess what? Turns out uh, she's in third. She had been in fifth, and she shot up to third. Biden in free fall, Klobuchar getting some of his votes. It is a remarkable story for her. But it's also the story that she came in third. 19.8%, she, 20%. She stayed fairly well clustered with, with the other two. She'll get some delegates out of it. Uh, but where can Amy Klobuchar go from here? Uh, she, now, she maybe she can go to South Carolina and work hard to get black voters, and she can go to Nevada and make a case for herself. Uh, there will be another debate for her to shine. But I, I do think that Claire McCaskill made a fair point that she, everyone has been talking about how badly Buttigieg does with black voters. And Klobuchar actually does worse with black voters. If you can't win black voters, you can't win the Democratic nomination. Iowa and New Hampshire are somewhat anomalous because uh, they are overwhelmingly white. But you're now moving out of there 
and you're moving to to a, a whole new level of, of candidate. And, and I got to tell you, we're still in this. I want to play this audio from this is a voter in New Hampshire who's interviewed as to how they were going to vote. And, and there there's some some truth here. People, I don't know. Take a look at this moment today in New Hampshire. Take a look. Sure. Who'd you vote for today? Um, I voted for Amy Klobuchar. Tell me why. Uh, I actually went in and Amy, Meeny, Miney, mowed it. You're kidding. No, between two Literally candidates. in the booth. In the booth. <laughs> wow. Wow. And, and is this, this is some of the data uh, that John King picks up from the New Hampshire primary. And Dover, uh, not too far away from each other, they're voting differently in those two wards? Well, it's... You raise a great point. We should get this out early. This is a crowded field. This is many candidates. This is, as David Chalian said in the exit polls, a race that broke really late. Klobuchar had that good debate Friday night. Buttigieg had the bounce out of Iowa. Sanders is the known entity. What would happen, right? Biden and Warren more established. Would they lose support to the newcomers, Buttigieg and Klobuchar, for the most part? If you go back in time and look, now we see more votes coming in up here. Another, another township coming in with Sanders in a lead up here in Thornton. Relatively small. Look at the 0.2% of the state population up there. But if you see Senator Sanders pulling up some votes, I just want to go back a little bit just to show you something. When you have more candidates in the race, look at the margins. Go back to 2016. You know, these were blowouts. In a two, Sanders ran it up in the state against uh, Secretary Clinton. Uh, but four years ago, you had two candidates. You have bigger margins. One of the challenges for Senator Sanders this time, he's a known face. He's expected to win because it's next door and because he won there last time, is what does he do with the margins? You see these small Klobuchar townships up here. That's the midnight vote. That's Dixville Notch. That's Hart's location there. And you see these other votes coming in. So is it different? Again, you're going to come over here. This is Dover. You know, very early on, Sanders with 40%, 41% to 20% there. If you go back in time and look at it, again, this was a blowout in the two-candidate race. But Dana was talking about this earlier. You go to a rally in New Hampshire with these voters, especially late in the campaign, they were anguished. They agree they want to beat Trump, but they were all over the place. You had liberals at Buttigieg events. You had more moderates at other events, and they were trying to figure this out. The more crowded race in the early results... We're seeing it play out. It's a, it was a tough choice for New Hampshire Democrats, and the early results play that out. This is too- yeah, y'all, I'm, I, I got to tell you, it, it's, and by the way, I like John King, full disclosure, I, I like Wolf and John King tremendously, and in fact, I see all the all the hipsters online in, in MSNBC is, oh, Steve Kornacki and his, and his information wall. No, John King and his magic wall is, is far more informative uh, he deep dives the data more, and and he is right here that because there is a more crowded field, it, it's tighter for Bernie. And at least he was willing to call that so, so much. And to to um, the lady who just called, it is it's actually interesting to me that uh, we've got a setup where you've got major coverage has been actually about Klobuchar. Uh, and Buttigieg doing so well, and not that Bernie won. And Klobuchar is a surprise. Major media headlines today. It, it, it really is. It, it's fascinating to see them covering her rise and the effort, I think, in the media to pivot to stop Bernie Sanders. Now, when we come back, what about black voters? Joy Reid, who is a bit of a nutter on MSNBC, actually said something that she makes a lot of sense. I know, I know, I know, but she's making some sense. I, you need to hear this audio to put this in perspective. And by the way, we do have Georgia stuff to cover. There's there's a foster care bill that has dropped that I want to talk about, but we we need to we need to get through this. Um, just bear with me. You gotta you gotta hear this when we come back. 
Welcome, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. We need to discuss a a, a scourge, a, a scourge, a, a blight of humanity that you didn't know existed. This this is this is this may actually be the most important story of the day. Knitting can be racist. I kid you not. Um, so a woman, her name is Karen Templer. She's a knitting designer. She owns an online store called Fringe Association. Let me read you uh, what she wrote. It was a blog post entitled 2019, My Year of Color. Now, this is a story from a year ago uh, that is recirculating uh, because there is now a greater outrage in the crafting community that too much of it is white. And interestingly enough, too much of it is Mormon. So, okay, just as an aside, there is a thing online, is a phenomenon, the mom blogger. And I haven't quite figured it out yet. I don't know if, it, it, I don't know the, the intentions of it or what, but, but it's very interesting. So this mom blogger phenomenon, it, it is overwhelmingly Mormon. And they have some put together families and they do crafting and, and organization and, and raising your kids. And it's just, it, it's incredible. And it, it's like a re- recruiting for, for the, the, the Latter-day Saints. It, it's impressive. Uh, and, and this, this is re- recurring theme now is coming back up because apparently the, the mom bloggers are overwhelmingly a, a attractive young white women and, and how racist it is. And there aren't people of color in it. And there's all sorts of outrage. And, and a, a friend of mine sent this and, and said, well, remember this one, this is insane. So here's this post, this woman wrote, I wanted to go to India for as long as I can remember. I'm a lifelong obsession. I have a lifelong obsession with literature and history of the continent. Photos of India fill me with longing, like no other place. One of my closest friends friends when I was 12 and her family had offered back then that if I ever wanted to go with them on one of their trips, I could to a suburban Midwestern teenager with a severe anxiety disorder. That was like being offered a seat on a flight to Mars. Then about six weeks ago, the opportunity presented itself a chance to go with the friend who's been, I said, yes. And I felt like the top of my head was going to fly off. I'm so indescribably excited within 48 hours, three of my friends who are so much better travelers than me, uh, but who are equally humbled at the idea of actually going to India also said, yes, there has hardly been a single day since that. I haven't said in disbelief, either in my head or out loud, I'm going to India. This is a woman who is terribly excited. And then Alex Klein showed up in her comments, Karen, I'd ask you to reread what you wrote and think about how your words feed into a colonial imperialist mindset toward India and other non-Western countries. Multiple times you compare the idea of going to India to the idea of going to another planet. How do you think a person from India would hear about that, would feel to hear about that? And Karen replied very apologetically and said, no, it's just I, I've never been to a place like this. It, it wasn't meant to be imperialist. It was meant to be it's, it's like going to to a different planet for me because I've never been anywhere like it. And, and Klein retorts, instead of asking your Indian friends to perform more emotional labor for you and assuage your white woman's tears, maybe do some reflection on how your equation of India with an alien world reinforces an other mindset that is the core of imperialism and colonialism. I kid you not, it blew up massively. Well, uh, so finally, poor Miss Templer had to get on her blog and say words matter and 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 apologize 
I have hurt, angered, and disappointed a lot of people this week with my insensitive post about my upcoming trip to India and my handling of the response, and I'm so sorry about it. I've spent the week listening hard and learning and thinking about all of the things I can do to be more inclusive and supportive of people of color. Good Lord. Come on, people. She's excited to go to India, and you've ruined it for her, and now it's happening with the mom bloggers. They're too white. It's all racist to be a good mother who organizes their pantry. No, it's not racist. It's just OCD. Just a quick time out from the show to thank one of my favorite sponsors, one of the products I use on a daily basis multiple times. That would be my Quip electric toothbrush. And I really am a customer, and I really was before they started advertising for me. That's the way I like to do these ads. I like to endorse a product I'm already using, and Quip is one that I use, my wife uses, and both of my kids use, and we've used it before I started advertising. They make great electric toothbrushes. They're not the super fancy expensive ones, and you get a better clean. Why do you get a better clean? Well, because the quip you brush your teeth for two minutes and it pulses every 30 seconds so you know how to reposition it in your mouth and for those two minutes Dennis wants you to brush your teeth for two minutes you get a great clean with great sonic vibrations that really get your teeth clean and you know I've got Invisalign braces so I've got those attachments a lot of stuff gets stuck in them and behind the little attachments and with the quip I can always clean my teeth the way they need to be clean it is a great toothbrush and it's not going to break the bank it's just well made you can tell it's made by Dennis and designers together if you go to getquip.com slash erickson right now you can get a quip and you can start with a brush head refill subscription where every three months they send you a new brush head they even include a battery and you get your first refill for free that's your first refill free at getquip.com slash erickson it's g-e-t-q-u-i-p.com slash erickson e-r-i-c-k-s-o-n quip the good habits company i'm here but i'm trying to figure out these st- Stupid macros. I y'all, I'm this this die oh wait, I can have oatmeal? Let's see. What what is the oatmeal? Oh dear God in heaven. That's I got a, a cup and a half of raw oatmeal? You're good lord. Okay, oh, um, I give up. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson show. So yeah, I'm I got the RP diet app thing that my trainer suggests I use for the it's gonna drive it takes the joy out of I just want to eat. And like go to the gym and, and maybe I need to develop an eating disorders. I just, no, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Some of you are going to be offended by that. It just, it drives me crazy. Okay. I'm going to do what I never do. I'm going to start a segment of the program with a phone call. I, I actually am, believe it or not, um, because it, it gets to what I wanted to talk about anyway. So I'm going to have Mark uh, calling from middle Georgia. Help me kick off the show. Mark, welcome. Hello, Eric. How are you doing? I'm great. How about yourself? Ah, not too bad. Um, I do like your show, by the way. Thank um, you. You changed. Uh, everything changed. You took over someone's slot, and I was a little apprehensive, but you've you've actually exceeded my expectations. Well, I'm going to try not to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right, I'll get to my point. Um, I, like everyone else, have, you know, we, we have these thoughts on Biden of why he got in and then it all the obvious thing was that it made sense because he was the the vice president and all this stuff but then with the impeachment going on and the articles being held up it seems to me that biden has just been a big head fake you know pay attention to biden we've got bloomberg sneaking in and then with the with the impeachment thing that really 
blew me away holding up the articles because it seemed like that was just to kill Sanders, to kill Warren, to kill every senator that was going to have to sit there. They weren't going to be able to, you know, participate in Iowa. And so it was like the obvious thing was to help Biden. But when you look at Biden can't raise any money, how could he have been the chosen one? Yeah, yeah. I still think Buttigieg is the chosen one. See, okay, Um, I I get what you're saying, and I I would disagree just to this extent. Um, The media is is really good about narrative and, and not necessarily good about projection and prognostication. And there's something to be said for having the uh, former vice president who was Barack Obama's vice president who has uh, 60% approval in the black community be the guy to come out and run. Uh, and so I think a lot of the media, myself included, frankly, I bought into that. Yeah, this looks on paper. Biden looks to be formidable. And when you write out all of the candidates who are going to run, Biden looks to be the guy. It just didn't turn out that way. He was a paper tiger. Um, now, now you you are definitely right, Mark, that Buttigieg is, is someone who a lot of them are really excited about. But Buttigieg is also, uh, I, I think, white people like. And the white people in the media love Buttigieg. Uh, but he's not translating well outside of rich white people. And, in, and frankly, demographically in New Hampshire, uh, you got a bunch of, of upper income white people who, who voted for Buttigieg. You know, interestingly enough, back to Klobuchar real quick. Do you know that she did best among people who go to church regularly? If you were voting in the Democratic primary and you go to church regularly, Amy Klobuchar was the person you voted for. If you never go to church, Bernie Sanders was the one that you voted for. I'm always fascinated by that dynamic. You can get a get a sense of how things are shaping up by that. Um, I think, though, that the media fixation is moving rapidly to Bloomberg, not to Buttigieg, because deep down— if you talk to reporter, if you talk to Democratic strategists, you don't even have to talk to reporters. And I know a number of Democratic strategists. They're they're friends of mine. Even as we disagree on stuff, we actually get along very well. And I know a lot of them. And privately, what they say is that they are worried about Buttigieg being a uh, small town Midwest mayor. I mean, South Bend has a population of about a hundred thousand. That's about the size of Bibb County here in Georgia. Um, and they're they're worried about him being the nominee because of his lack of experience and because Buttigieg can come off somewhat robotically. He descends into corporate McKinsey-esque um, speech, and can he really relate to people, particularly to black voters? But there's a rapid move towards Bloomberg. Let me listen. I know many of you don't like him. I, I actually adore the guy. Uh, Joe Scarborough and I have been friends for a very long time. Um, I may disagree with him. You're not going to hear me say anything critical of him himself. Even if we disagree, I disagree with him on Bloomberg, uh, but listen to him uh, talking about Bloomberg. This is kind of indicative of where a lot of the media is headed. The alleged firewall we keep hearing about. There was that Q poll that came out that all of a sudden looked like, oh, wait a minute, that firewall is going away. The idea that African-American voters will hang in come what may with Joe Biden just isn't true. If they see him losing and losing, they're not going to hang in with him, are no, they? Absolutely. I think I've been saying all along that, you know, African-American voters and it's a complex constituency. Yeah. 
right, are pragmatic in, 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 in how they, they like work. to win. They like to win. We like to win. That's I not really say. complicated. No, it's not really complicated. But we also know that if there's an increase in turnout, we've been saying it, if there's an increase in, tur in turnout, it's going to be younger voters who are going to be showing up. That's going to help Bernie Sanders. Yeah. We also see that among the supporters for, for Joe Biden, there's some questions about whether or not he could take it to the tape. And we see some people who are interested in Mike Bloomberg. I've been traveling around the country for Martin Luther King Day. And what I've been hearing among particularly upper middle class black voters, right, is that there's right. an interest in Mike Bloomberg, yeah. which is kind of odd given the critique of Kamala Harris as the prosecutor right. and the cop. And here you have this guy with stop. You know friends. why? People, and Robert knows this better than anybody else, it ain't about ideology. Like, we Republicans were running around in 2007 talking about how Barack Obama was the second most liberal senator in the United States Senate. It ain't about ideology. It's about who people think are going to lead them into the future, the strongest. Take care of them, take care of their families, take care of the country. And, you know, right now, for a lot of Democrats, it doesn't make sense. To a lot of people, just like Trump didn't make sense to a lot of people for Republicans. But right now, it looks like Mike Bloomberg. Oh, look, there's a guy that knows how to punch Trump in the face, and he drives him crazy. Yeah. And listen, that's a fair analysis. Uh, regardless of what you think of, of, of Joe, that's actually a very fair analysis. There are a lot of Democrats who are seeing Bloomberg, and Bloomberg knows this, by the way. Bloomberg knows that as long as he can trash talk Trump, that he will get a favorable showing with a lot of Democrats. The problem is that Bloomberg has not very well been vetted. The Republicans are going to vet him, and the Democrats are largely going to do their best. And the media, by the way, is, is going to largely do their best to ignore him. But this, this gets back to the problem. Let, let me play you this clip. From Mike Bloomberg, uh, and and I, I don't even want to tell you what it is. I want to play it and let you digest it, and then ask yourself, what would the media say if Trump said this? I'd like to ask you a question. You touched on Eastern Europe a little bit with the Ukraine. Uh, do you have any uh, plans because uh, Lithuania and the Baltic states certainly love you to come visit personally? Uh, you're, you've been identified as a person that we'd love to see there. It'll have a center there in a country that's a strong democracy, emerging market, and would love to see you there. Well, nice to do that. Most of my philanthropy in helping cities originally thought about uh, basically in America. Um, but we, as I said, did a European competition. Um, I think we're going to wind up doing something for India. And just a limited number of things we can do. But keep in mind, it, it's up to the American public if they want to spend their money uh, foreign aid, and we should insist on getting value for our foreign aid. We should insist on getting value for our foreign aid out of Ukraine. Out of Ukraine! He also went on and, and compared Putin's invasion of Crimea to the American takeover of California in the 1800s and said, we do this too. We do this all the time. We, we've done this historically. Can you imagine if Donald Trump had said that, what the media would do? And yet they're willing to give him a pass. Uh, I, I will say this, and let, let me move beyond him and get back to Mark's point on, on Biden. I, on paper, former vice president, served with Barack Obama in the United States Senate for, gosh, what, 30, 30 40 years? 
uh, has a huge fundraising base, has huge support among black voters. A on paper, he's the guy to beat. On paper, he's the guy you want. On paper, he's the guy who everyone should connect with because of his ties to Barack Obama. And and he's not. He's flailing. It's it's kind of sad. Uh, Robert Gibbs was the, the Obama press secretary. Here he is on MSNBC. Where does that delegate math look like? And yeah. so you may have five go on. You may not have five that are plausible. And I think, you know, an existential crisis tonight for Vice President Biden, he, he, if he's got to win South Carolina, he just has to. And he has to prove that that electorate that hasn't participated fully yet, when it does, is still for him. Mm. And I think that's a huge and open question tonight. Uh, that that is um, uh, that's Obama's press secretary, and that uh, that electorate that hasn't participated yet. He's he's talking about black voters. They've still got to turn out for Biden, and if they don't, it's a problem. Now, look, I, I did not intend to spend the entire day on on this, but it is kind of a big deal, honestly. When. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm trying to put this in perspective where it would very much be like, for those of you who are older than me, uh, which is probably most of the listeners, honestly, um, I, I, I'm I'm 44. And if you're slightly older than me to to your senior seasoned citizen, um, it's it would be like George H.W. Bush losing the nomination in 1988 to Bob Dole. He was Bush was Reagan's vice president. He had been the head of the RNC, ambassador to China, the head of the CIA, a World War II veteran, a huge resume. If he had lost in 1988, that would have been a really big freaking deal. And this now I realize you've got four years removed, but still, this is Obama's legacy. Joe Biden was his guy. He got the Presidential Medal of Freedom for Obama's being a great vice president. But it's really telling the silence of the Obama team. They've been really, really quiet about Biden. And part of me, honest to goodness, part of me wonders if there's going to be some level of intervention behind the scenes. I mean, will, will Obama himself... Go to the um, go to Biden and say, "Hey, buddy, probably time for you to get out of this." Joe, we love you. Uh, time to go enjoy your retirement. I mean, li- listen to this conversation on CNN. You, you know, there were two national polls in the last couple of days that showed him dropping significantly. And what was noteworthy, at least in the Quinnipiac poll, I haven't been able to look inside the Mammoth poll yet. Uh, was a precipitous drop among African Americans after yeah. Iowa. Well, he had 51 or 2 percent before Iowa, and it was down to like 25, 26 percent. So it dropped by half, which goes to what you guys are saying. Uh, African American voters are discerning voters. They're looking for a candidate who can beat Donald Trump. They were attracted to Joe Biden, yes, because of his service with Barack Obama, but also because they thought he was the guy who could beat Trump. Right. And it's hard to look like a winner when you're losing. Right. <laughs> That's David Axelrod, Barack Obama's chief strategist. I know David Axelrod. David Axelrod, by the way, as an aside, is a great, great commentator. 
He he really is. Uh, he and Van Jones on CNN uh, do the Democrats a, a a good service by being willing to call BS on their own side and, and be objective about it. They they do a fantastic job. David is a very nice guy, uh, and you would think he would be supportive of Biden, and yet he's one of the ones who's been saying for a while that Biden is floundering around. Biden is flubby, and he is. He's old. My goodness, and Bernie Sanders is older than him. At some point, age matters, and it's going to matter with Joe Biden. I f- it really is starting to look like elder abuse. I feel sorry for the guy. I like Joe Biden. Listen, I realize you and I disagree on everything Joe Biden says, but it's hard not to like a guy who, who's who's that that crazy, affable, and 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 laughable. And and his wife has done such good work behind the scenes without ever getting credit for it. Uh, with people in the military who who came back from overseas with debilitating injuries, they're just they're nice people. They really are. He's a terrible politician, and and he would be a bad president with the policies he would advance. But I, I can say that and say he's a nice person. And I realize there are some people that say no, you can't because he's a progressive, and no progressive is good. I'm I. Try to like people on the other side of the aisle, even when I disagree with them. But, oh, my goodness, what a disaster. It's time for him to go. It is time for him to go, and it's time for us to move on from talking about it. All right. One more interesting little political note. Uh, There's Alabama polling. Doug Jones, uh, he's getting blown out of the water right now in the Alabama Senate. Jeff Sessions at 31%. Tommy Tuberville, 29%. uh, Bradley Burns, 17%. Roy Moore, 5%. Only 16% undecided. Uh, <laughs> Jones loses to all of them uh, by all of them getting over 50%. Uh, he, he is dead man walking. And uh, interestingly enough, um, all the people on the Democratic side upset about this are pointing out, but all the same polls show that Trump is going to lose. Yeah, but all the polls showed that George W. Bush was going to lose to John Kerry at this time and. 2004 things changed. The one stable thing is that uh, he is Doug Jones is not going to win in Alabama. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Jesse Smollett, however you say his last name, if you if you listen to the Dave Chappelle stand up on Netflix, it's Jesse Smollett. Uh, he is indicted in Chicago. I find this story hilarious. Uh, so he sets up, for those of you who do not recall, Juicy Smoulet. He was the actor on Empire, the Fox show, who was worried about being dropped from the show. So he went to Chicago, and it was in like negative 10 degrees in, in a blizzard-like conditions, and decided to walk to a subway and claimed that two dudes with uh, Make America Great Again hats and rope uh, showed up out of the blue and said, hey, aren't you Juicy Smollett from Empire? We need to lynch you. And <laughs> he made the whole thing up. He really worked with, with his trainers who were Nigerian or some such. I mean, the whole thing was a scam, and it was designed to get him attention for standing up. To Donald Trump, you know, he said he would he had that had that interview uh, with what's her name, Gail King or or whoever, and and um he 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 took it to the man. He he was he was a brave dude and took it to the man. Holy moly! Well, he made the whole thing up, um, and it 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 
didn't go over the way he planned it to go. And well, now he's getting indicted. Now, if you'll recall, the district attorney cut a deal with him and basically he got out of everything. Even though, and the police in in Chicago were livid because when they said they didn't believe him, he and his team blasted the police, and it, it became a big deal there. The way he handled it, and is so many members of the press treated him as if he was some honest broker or some such. It was deeply embarrassing. And uh, they should have known better, but they didn't. And everyone kind of apologized for him or at least uh, distanced themselves. uh, And it didn't turn out well for Juicy Smollett. And now he's going to be indicted. I was trying to find this. Well, I I don't have time to play this audio of the, the... the way the media treated it is as if he was telling the truth, very much like, you know what it reminded me of in the CNN debate when the media went after when they went after Bernie Sanders for saying to Elizabeth Warren that a woman couldn't win. And he denied it and said, there's no way he would ever say that. And then they turned to Elizabeth Warren and say, why did Bernie Sanders tell you this? Um, they just treated it as if it was true when it wasn't. It was such a scam. All righty, we got other stuff to talk about. Can we, can we move on, please, from from New Hampshire? Everybody, Joe Biden sure moved on from New Hampshire. <laughs> uh, I want to bring you up to, uh, up to date on something real quick. So, uh, th- this is important. Um, I, I have blasted Fifth Third Bank repeatedly. Fifth Third Bank in Wells Fargo. You will recall that in Florida they have an opportunity scholarship program. Uh, Fifth Third Bank has contributed $5.4 million uh, into this program over time. It is a program that allows poor kids to go to a school of their choice. It gives scholarships into private schools for poor kids in failing school systems to get out. There are 1,000 schools that participate. 83 of those 1,000 schools are Christian schools uh, that actually believe the Bible and take it seriously and want the kids to go there to take it seriously. And so they, they require that if you come to their school, you you support uh, biblical ethics, including the biblical ethic of sexuality, that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman and homosexuality and adultery are sins. Well, because of that, because these 83 schools could potentially allow poor kids to get good Christian educations, Fifth Third Bank and Wells Fargo walked away from the scholarship under pressure from the alphabet gang. And Fifth Third Bank has decided to come back to it. They, they have reconsidered it. Uh, Tony Perkins, writing at the Daily Signal, notes this, that Fifth Third Bank has come to its senses. After a week of uncertainty, the company sat down with Florida parents and pastors and decided not to listen to the cultural bullies. It's one thing for a company to support LGBT extremism. It's quite another. The bank agreed to hurt needy children in the process. Most kids had already left school for the weekend when they got the good news. One of the biggest contributors to the Florida voucher program wasn't dropping out after all. Fifth Third Bank, who joined Wells Fargo and abandoned the scholarships had gotten an earful. And after a few days of protest rallies and nonstop phone calls, the business finally relented. Its $5.4 million investment in school choice for the state would go on regardless of what the Orlando Sentinel and some liberal lawmakers uh, think. Uh, Orlando, The Orlando Sentinel was deeply, deeply um, critical of Fifth Third Bank for supporting poor kids going to schools of their choices. And Fifth Third Bank has now uh, decided that they will, in fact, support 
that that program. Uh, Wells Fargo, however, is standing with the Alphabet Gang and basically telling uh, poor kids to to um, go to failing schools and and lest you become a Christian which is just hilarious to me that they would do that, but they would. Um, okay, uh, we, we'll we'll get to the false, even if I have to put it off tomorrow. I actually want to talk about this instead because I'm tired of talking about politics. We talk about other stuff here. I, 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 too many people just spend all their time talking about politics. I want to talk about something else because I got this question, and I've talked about it on my other show, and I haven't really talked about it here. I uh, got, a, got a listener, and now I cannot remember who they are or where they're from. I just got the email yesterday and then accidentally deleted it. Uh, but uh, it, it, I wrote a note that I needed to, to address <clears throat> the issue is your kids and the internet. And we, you know, I've got a, I've got a 14 year old and I got an 11 year old and how do you deal with your kids on the internet? And they were looking for some advice uh, on this issue from me and, and what I do. And, and so I want to walk you through what I do because this is a growing issue for a lot of people uh, as there are so many bad things on the internet. And by the way, we are really bad in our house. Our, our kids probably, use screens too much um in fact with our 11 year old we're beginning to think we need to just like take them away during the during the week and and i've got for sale we 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 let our child use it an hour a day no i mean our our screens are our babysitters in our house i'm just being honest with you Uh, we're bad about it and and we will we'll write rules down and we'll enforce them for a while then we get lax with our kids because we've got two really good well-behaved kids uh, who generally do well in school. Our, our 11-year-old needs a little motivation. Our, our 14-year-old is is brilliant. And uh, we, we try to be a little lax with them. But I'm increasingly concerned, too, if, if we're honest about it, uh, of just the, the general stuff you get on YouTube and things and, and the stuff you can encounter. So we do a couple of things in our house. First of all, we're an all-Apple family in our house. We don't have any PCs or Android devices in our house. So that makes it somewhat different. And then Apple has a very robust screen time program. Uh, as long as your, your uh, devices are all up to date, you have access to screen time. Screen time can regulate the amount of time your kids are on the computer, can regulate the amount of time they're on each app on their phone or computer, and you can override it. It it has some override rules. If your kid's got to study for an exam or something, you can let them be on, for example, the internet longer or access certain websites, but you can also restrict the websites and... Apple does a pretty good job of categorizing sites based on their family friendliness, and you can block sites that aren't very family friendly. But the other thing we have is this device called a circle. You can get it at Best Buy. You can get it at Target. You can get it at Walmart. uh, You can get it on Amazon. It's Circle by Disney. And the circle device is very, very easy to set up. Uh, You just you plug it into the wall and you follow the app and it will connect to your Wi-Fi system. And it will override access to your internet connection and regulate it. And so what you do is is you you download the app to, I've got it on my iPhone. And it'll say, okay, here are all of the devices that connect to Wi-Fi in your house. You'll say, okay, this is this is the kid's Xbox. This is my, yeah, I got an Xbox. This is my Xbox. Uh, this is our family Apple TV. This is the Apple TV in the playroom. This is the 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 boy's iPad. This is the, the daughter's iPad. This is her cell phone. He's too young for one. She is too, but she needs one. Uh, there's, there's a story there. Um, and you, then this is my wife's and this is mine. And then you can go through and you can say, okay, for for my 14-year-old, I want her to have a little more access than the 11-year-old, but I want her maximum amount of time on the internet should be four hours. 
And for the 11-year-old, a maximum of time, four hours. But he plays a whole lot of games, and I only want him to be able to spend an hour on games. The rest of it needs to be doing for homework stuff. And it'll monitor, and you'll get a little alert on your phone and say, hey, Gunner, he's, he's my 11-year-old. He's, he's used up all of his time. And you can choose to give him a reward, give him more time. You can see all the websites they're going to. You can see what they're looking at. it. And if you're a proactive parent, do that. But there's something else you need to do. And and I feel very strongly about this. And, and I'll tell you, I feel strongly about it. And I don't do it a ton. And in large part, again, because I, I do think I have uh, good kids who are well-behaved. And I don't have to worry about it very much with them. But I know some people who do. They are your children. And they are not your friend. Now, I, I'm not saying be, be mean. I'm not saying don't be a friend to your child. Your, your child should be feel comfortable coming to you with all sorts of stuff. But you are the parent. You are not their best friend. And it is galling to me, frankly, to see people who treat their kid as if they're their best friend. They get dolled up together and all that. So it just, it, it, I, I, I have strongly held opinions on this. Now, I, I, I'm not going to write a parenting book because my kids aren't out of the house yet. I can still screw them up. But, you know, by the way, so there's a a very famous preacher in this country who every single person listening to me right now would know who this preacher is I'm talking about, very famous pastor, Uh, actually just retired, and I wanted to interview him and his wife about raising their kids a while back, and they declined. And they said that they they completely screwed up their kids, and and it was it was the the saving grace of God that that got their kids right, not them. They screwed it all up, and and not only does the husband refuse to preach or teach on uh, raising your children, he won't write a book about it, and he won't give topics about it, and won't won't speak about it. I thought that was deeply humbling and fascinating. That that here is a highly regarded, well respected pastor who everyone in this country would know uh, for the most part. And it refuses to to talk about raising kids because he doesn't think he did a good job. Deeply humbling for me. And, and I, I'm sure I can screw up my kids. Uh, I, we can all screw up our kids. But this whole I'm I'm my kid's best friend and we're going to hang out together and all that. No, I'm my kid's parent. And you're your kid's parent. Yes, I have a strongly held view on this, and that don't misinterpret it as as don't be don't, uh, you can't be friends with your kids and, and stuff. But I mean that this whole idea. I know people. By the way, I I do. I'm not making this up. I know people who they have they've embraced this whole idea of being a friend with their kid to such a degree. Uh, they they've they've uh, been drinking with their kid. They they advise their kid on on sexual relations with their girlfriend. Uh, I know on one occasion that this one person I'm thinking of has, has, has smoked weed with their kid. Now, now their kid is now 18, but still 18, still in high school. And a completely screwed up individual. And, and I realize thou shalt not judge. I get it. But I'm thinking, no, you've, you've completely screwed up the parenting. And you're probably going to be a granddad here very soon if you're not careful the, the way things are going. And it's just sad to see. Uh, the, the, this this descent into I've got to be my kid's best friend, and because you're the kid's best friend, you, you don't want to you don't want to engage in uh, adulting and parenting of the child. You want to hang out. It makes you feel young, and just don't do that. And you got to be mindful of your kid's internet time. There are so many dark holes 
that kids can get sucked down on in the internet if you're not careful. And because you're the parent and they live under your roof, and by God, you bought these devices for them, you should reserve for yourself the right to get on the device and check and see what they're doing. And look at their direct messages on social media, on Instagram, on on Twitter, if they're on Twitter. In, in my house, we use the Circle device. You can't get into TikTok or Snapchat if you're in my house. Uh, TikTok, because it is a Chinese spy tool, and Snapchat, because there are way too many kids who get on Snapchat. They think the stuff really does disappear, and so they delete it all. Uh, or they get on and they do all sorts of indecent things they shouldn't do, and they think they're they're free to do it. It's like being anonymous on the internet. The people who are anonymous on the internet believe that because it can never be tracked back to them, they can be their worst self. I was my worst self and used my name on the internet, and it was a bad thing. And I see these people who are anonymous to this. It's like you know your anonymity only goes so far. At some point, someone's going to expose you because you keep crossing the line, and it's going to ruin you because you're such a jerk on social media. It's like these people who get on on newspapers. Have you ever read a newspaper site that has a comment section? Never read the comments. The people who comment on on media sites clearly are people who have problems. Never read the comments. The the commenters, you know, I explain to people all the time, as a matter of fact, how it works. Uh, Remember the story in in the New Testament where Jesus cast the demons out of the possessed men. Now, uh, one one version of the gospel is that's one man, another is two. There's a a reason uh, that's the case. Um, It it doesn't mean the story's wrong. Uh, There were two men. They were living in a cemetery. They were possessed. Jesus asked the demons the name. The demon says, we are legion for we are many. And, And they say, son of man, don't, don't cast us out. Allow, allow us to go into this herd of pigs. So they go into the herd of pigs and they run down the hill and all the pigs drowned in the water. What the Bible leaves out from that story is that all of the demons had to go somewhere after the pigs drowned and they went to social media. And that, that explains Twitter. They've all got Twitter accounts now. I mean, the the the, the spawn of Satan, the, the horde of the devil, they've all got social media accounts. And that explains the comment sections of newspapers. That explains the anonymous trolls on social media. It, 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 it's all a bunch of minions of Satan. And whether that is or not, people certainly behave that way. They do. And you got to be careful with your kid doing this. You, you've got to make sure your kid understands there, there really is nothing online that's going to go away forever. Uh, the, the, the Snapchat stuff, you, they think it's, it's ephemeral. They think it's going to go away. It doesn't. Someone can take a picture of it and ruin their life. And your kids need to be mindful of it. I've got a friend of mine, actually, who and, and I didn't do this with my kids. I wasn't going to do this with my kids. But their child, they went out when their child was born. And they got all the user accounts in their child's name. They got a Facebook account for the child. They got a, a Twitter account. They've got an Instagram account. They've got a Snapchat account. They've got a, now a TikTok account. And they do this for their kid, and, and they don't use it. They're just holding it so if the kid ever wants it, they've already got an account with their with their name as opposed to having to, to be um, dash daring 315 underscore or some such. They've got their kid's name. I'm like, eh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be persuading our kids to go down this road. You know what I would prefer my kids do? In all honesty, I'd prefer if my kids were engaged in their community in a face-to-face way with people in their community, either on a sports team or, or something else, uh, in a church youth group or something, where they're actually having meaningful interaction with other human beings. The, the rise of depression and mental health issues with teenagers in this country has been going up as increasingly they are swapping 
meaningful face-to-face human interaction with online interaction. Online interaction, it, 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 there, there are some people who say, well, you know, it's just a transition period and we'll get used to it and, and people are overstating the dangers. No, I got to tell you, uh, Genesis 1 and 2. Why does God create Eve? He says, man should not be alone. Why does God create us? Because he wants a relationship with us. We are relational beings. If we're created in the image of the living God, we are relational beings because he is a relational being. And a relational being requires physical contact with other people and being online, even FaceTiming text messaging and stuff is no substitute for the, the tactile contact you have when you touch someone else, when you interact with them, when you can smell them and see them and, and enjoy them and, and, and see the look in their eye or, or their interaction. It's just, it's a completely different thing. And so many of us are abandoning that. And, and I got to tell you, if there's one thing I wish I did better with my own kids, it really would be to push them more to have meaningful human interaction with people beyond their mom and me to, to get them out of the house and, and engage in society. Either helping with a nonprofit or just being in a, in a church youth activity or being in a sport because the online stuff only goes so far and, and you, you are going to ruin your, I'm going to ruin my kids. We're, we're all going to screw it up if we aren't working with our kids to develop meaningful relationships. But along the way, when it comes to the internet, regulating their time and where they can go is stop being your kid's friend. There are some places on the internet they should not go. And there are plenty of devices, the circle device, the screen time app on, on, on the iPhone and the others that can help you restrict where your kids go on the internet. They are not many adults. They're children. They don't know things. You're supposed to still protect them. And you should, instead of abdicating your responsibility to the internet, that's, that's bad. Well, okay. L- let me give you just a, l- a little bit of a primer as we as we head out the door here on the foster care. I want to spend some more time on it tomorrow. Um, it, the governor here in Georgia, Brian Kemp, has begun rolling out his foster care overhaul bill, and I got to tell you, he makes a good point in this. Uh, he said after signing the fetal heartbeat legislation last year that if we're going to curtail abortion in the state of Georgia then we need to be mindful in the uptick of the number of children who are going to be born, and we need to take care of those kids. And he's right. You know, one of the the, the major criticisms that the, the, the pro-abortion crowd attacks the pro-life crowd with is you only care about the baby in the womb once they're born, you don't care about them. Uh, no, actually, we do. That that's That's not true. It's easy and trite to say it makes a good bumper sticker for you, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's also that that's another argument. It's one of the fascinating things about the, the abortion movement is that all of the arguments, uh, the pro-abortion movement, or I'm sorry, they want to be called the pro-choice movement, but you know what I mean. Uh, the pro-abortion movement makes, they're all the repackaged arguments that that slaveholders made in the 1800s. And I'm not making that up and I'm not trying to be flippant. It's true. Uh, you only care about the 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 unborn child. You you only care about the slave. You won't care about them when they're free. Um, we, we have to we have to keep them on the plantation because we can take care of them. Um, they'll harm themselves in society if if they're let free. I mean, this is the argument that the, the 
pro-abortion pro crowd makes you only care about the child in the womb and, and you don't care about the child when they're born and they become criminals and and, and they get locked up and, and their lives are ruined and other people's lives are ruined or or, or it's it's my body, it's, it's, it's my property. All these things echo. Well, you know, the governor is is very concerned about kids in foster care in Georgia. Jeff Duncan is as well. I've talked to both of them a lot about it. Duncan is passionate about this issue. That the longer a child is in foster care in Georgia, the more likely they are to decline in grades, to decline in health, uh, and to increase in juvenile delinquent behavior. And I don't mean that disparagingly, just just that that's that's the term to be used uh, of criminal behavior and, and other things. And and something like only eleven or twelve percent of them read at grade level by the time they're a senior in high school, and they want to fix this. Uh, here's a problem, though. Uh, there is a growing fight in the legislature between members of the House on the Republican side and everyone else is largely led by the Speaker. And they have essentially put a halt to all of the governor's initiatives. Uh, all the governor's legislation can pass through the Senate, but it's not passing through the House. His major initiatives are not. There's a huge fight there, and it's only going to get more and more um, robust, this fight. They, they've paused the legislature to try to figure out what to do with the budget, among other things. I got to tell you, you know, the governor has not yet begun to fight on this issue with David Ralston holding up his agenda items. Uh, when the governor goes out and he finds primary opponents for some of these Republicans in the House, among other things, that's when it's going to get real. And I suspect there's going to be a movement afoot to make some of this happen. This fight is coming. We will spend time on this tomorrow here on the program.